0: Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company-reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.dalupa.com compounders to learn more about how DeLupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. Welcome to the Compounders podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities, The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Brandon Hawcott, a true entrepreneur. Brandon founded a company called True Family Dental, which was a roll-up of dental practices that was sold to a private equity-owned dental company a few years ago. Now, Brandon is at it again, but this time is focused on building both a dental practice platform and one dedicated to engineering and architectural firms. In this fast-moving conversation, we discussed the journey that led to the founding of True Family Dental, the opportunity that still exists to consolidate dental practices, what he finds interesting about engineering and architectural firms, how Brandon has chosen to fund and finance these companies, and how his approach is a little different from that of a typical private equity firm. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Brandon Halcott. There are a lot of places we could start this interview. But I thought it'd be interesting to hear about the journey that began with your graduation from Harvard Business School in 2010 and led to the co-founding of True Family Dental in 2013.
1: Absolutely. Um great place to start, Ben. Excited to start there. Uh you know, I, I say that I went to Harvard because they admitted me. Uh and then they they need to let a farmer in per year. And I was the only one to apply that year. So got lucky in terms of uh in terms of all that. But I, I use business school as a way to kind of reset the career path, if you would. Uh, up until then, had been um, on a financier career path, so did investment banking out of undergrad and private equity thereafter. It wasn't uh, because there was a passion for that. It was I, I grew up in a really small town, and anyone who was successful was a doctor or a lawyer. And so showed up at, a, at University of Chicago and started down, like sat in uh, Gen Chem, and got my doors blown off. So I was like, okay, I can't be a doctor um, didn't know about the lawyer, and so went into the, uh, econ as a major at the University of Chicago. They had a really good program there, and learned about investment banking. It was a oh, really hard job to get. You know, paid well. You know, work really long and tough. And it's like, oh, that all sounds great to me. Like that, that seems to fit really well. And so started there, and then went into private equity. But yeah, you know, I never could get a three statement model to balance. So at some point, I like realized that, hey, this isn't the path for me. But I really enjoyed and, and always had a, a great rapport with management teams. And so I used business school as a way to reset the trajectory and become more entrepreneurial. Like That was my application because um, I just saw you know, the businesses that we sold um, or raised financing for as an investment banker or owned um, while well, at the private equity firm. And it was really clear like, wow, they, they're having a ton of fun. Does, does what they're doing on a daily basis match up with? what i think i'd be great at and cuz i i think that's a you know, a fun part of life for some people it happens earlier for others later but w- what are you great at like what can you wake up and do and it just brings you joy and so that it's not a four letter word work uh it's i'm i'm living and i'm doing what i'm great at and um that that business school was the start of that to try to um you know, change where i was headed and what i was doing and uh, Harvard's an incredible institution and incredible brand. And, um, I mean, the education was great, but more importantly, like the people that I got to spend time with and the 90 people that were in my section the first year, just got to be able to learn from them and understand and see so many different world perspectives because people were international, uh, professional perspectives because everyone came from different, uh, walks of life. So it truly was a, uh, phenomenal experience and i mean wouldn't change it wouldn't go back and some people have their druthers on does an nba drive value and i mean for me it i, I absolutely say that it does you're, you're really able to raise the you raise your floor um america's always a meritocracy but if you've got that piece of paper you can you can if you're going to go swing big and fail you can you can fail softer i guess or easier more gentle landing if you do
0: fail And it took you a few years before you landed on True Family Dental as your focus. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the other things that you worked on and tried before you got there, and then what you learned in that process.
1: Yeah. So out of school, I wasn't. um, I I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I just didn't have like, hey, what am I going to do? Like, what I've learned since then is I'm I'm bad with a blank sheet of paper but I'm really good with a painting that needs to be painted better. Mm. And like, if you give me something that's going like, Oh great. Boom, boom, boom. And so it's just that initial creation that kind of causes me some, some Mm. causes me to stall, so to speak. Um, But out of school. So I wasn't ready to go do something on my own. And my thought was, Hey, I'm going to go work for i I'll go work for a CEO and really learn what it, what it takes to be. So I did that for a little bit. And it, it became apparent to me that you were responsible for your own education. Like if someone else isn't going to deliver that and you're, you're helping them be better, but you're at the end of the day, if like there is, it's always a school of hard knocks. If you're going to go out and build something, try something, etc. if you're doing it on your own, that's where you're really going to get a lot of, uh, a, a lot of value. So, um, I I did that initially. And then I went and started a a car repair company similar to safe light. Who's doing windshield repairs. We were doing um, cosmetic repairs, which is a pretty big industry, $9 billion industry, very fragmented, a lot of mom and pop shops out there. And so I was, the thought was to use tech to deliver the the B2C. So if, if a consumer has a dent or scratch is the dent um, bigger, or smaller than a dollar bill. And then is the scratch to the metal or not? And for both of those, uh, and I, I I can't control these balloons. I don't know. They've been happening to me on Zoom from time to time. So I I apologize, but hey, we're celebrating today. Um, I don't know if it's your birthday or not, but I'm, I might be early or I might be late. Um, so the car repair business was, uh, it was that first for like my first time going and putting something together and really trying things there. And uh, the the mobile application was incredible because we could source consumers cheaply and we were buying keywords because other people weren't buying like body shops weren't buying keywords at that time from like a, a PPC perspective. And so you could buy the keywords and it was we were going to give them an instant estimate. We're going to do the work at their home or office. So the friction that exists in the industry is you go to the body shop, you're ignorant in terms of like you don't know what things cost. There's not like a, a and you feel that you're going to be taken advantage of. And, and so we were trying to remove all that being transparent pricing, those type of things and working well with insurance carriers. So that was the consumer side. And then the the B2B side, we were using enterprise at, at airports. We were working on their cars and helping them lower their turn back time. So a turn back time is you get a car, it needs some work to be done. It either has to be cleaned, washed, vacuumed, et cetera, or some work might have to be done on it. And your inventory as your turn back time gets longer. Your inventory is going to get bigger because you need more cars because less of the time they're outside of uh, the available inventory to to go to customers. And so we were, we were taking them and turning them back in two to three days with these small dents or scratches that normally took over a week at the body shop. So then that lower their inventory needs on a given location. And we would expand geographically with, um, with them. And it was, I mean, just, it was working really well. I, my investors. So I had, there were major investors that existed there, lead investors, if you would, but all private capital, um, no, no funds or VC funds, things of that nature. And there was concern around dilution and growing big and taking on big equity rounds. So it made sense to me that, Hey, the, the, the growth was going to be challenging. So I sold my shares and then went to a, a roll up of for-profit beauty schools. And I mean, the, and then, especially next, since dental comes next, the question is like, how does this all fit together? Well, there, which is a, which is a great question because there's like, what's the commonality? On the surface level, it, there is none. But if you dig deeper, they're they're fragmented industries that had low technology adoption. So back to that, give me a painting, I can paint it and make it better. But give me the blank sheet of canvas, and that's where I'm going to get scared. Um, and so th- did a roll up with for-profit beauty schools, was out buying locations, putting them under one brand, adding additional technology from not only the, the student acquisition piece, but also the curriculum within the, within the, um, within the individual schools. And had had a lot of fun there, learned a lot. Unfortunately, we were running into title IV funding from the government. So the, the funding for, your HVAC majors, your beautician, those type of things was running out. And it's just, it was the industry changed like overnight, unfortunately. And so I set sail again for next adventure, which became uh True Family Dental.
0: This season of compounders is sponsored by DeLupa. Delupa was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. And before you started thinking about the dental space and the opportunity there, did you know anything about the industry or were you, did you come into a cold and try to apply some of the fragmented um, industry lessons that you learned from the prior ventures?
1: It was, it was a little bit of both. So at, the private equity fund that i worked at uh, we had a a roll-up of uh, physical therapy practices and so that was ati physical therapy which still exists today large business went uh, advent took them public a, a few years ago and so i mean that thing has done incredibly well but uh yeah i'd seen that part and that's if you look at the spectrum in like healthcare or multi-unit outpatient healthcare, it if you go from physical therapy all the way up to, you know, your outpatient heart, like I can do outpatient heart surgery, but the heart surgeon would be up here in terms of, you know, very specific focus. And, um, you know, those are the, like there's few of those, whereas physical therapy, you have got repeat, you're not repeat customers, but you've got this flow of customers coming from, uh, all the, all the surgeries being done or injuries, work comp claims, things of that nature. And your specialization of the provider is, less specialized here versus a heart surgeon and so what i learned while we were doing that is as you, as you move up market in terms of the specialization of the provider you're there's more key provider risk like if that it, it, the replaceability of that and not like how hard is it to hire someone else and how many of those individuals are graduating on a given year and then what's the demand side so learned learned a lot about that obviously it was totally focused on the physical therapy side. Um, and so knew about roll-ups, healthcare, those type of things, but dental specific had to learn everything there. Um, but the fragmentation that existed and the low technology adoption um, were, were there in droves. Like in 2014, when we got started, there was still a decent amount of offices that had paper charts. Like, so you're, wow. And what happens if I want to see how many procedures I perform? Well, you have to go pull charts and count. So it was pretty clear that, uh, and, and, that and that was you know, throughout the entire industry. So uh, it, it, you could see the opportunity that existed there.
0: We're going to talk a little bit about technology within the dental space in in a couple minutes, but I'd love to stick on the diligence side. So you you know there are some pattern recognition here that you saw that there was some similarities between what happened at the, at your private equity experience. What kind of diligence did you do to be you know comfortable today saying that this is going to be my next big swing um, versus all the other things that you could have done?
1: Yeah, and it's so the three choices at the end were self storage, fleet refueling, and dental. In the the all fragmented, all low technology adoption. Um, I think self storage is done really well if, as you look at that uh, through the period of time, and then fleet refueling. Uh, you're going around filling up uh, delivery vehicles because um, any anyone that has like that type of consul- or even construction vehicles, like you can't take the the tower crane that's on the construction site and take it over to Seven Eleven and gas it up, right? You gotta, so you have to do these things on site. And any of those businesses that have that as p and L line item, there's a considerable amount of shrink that happens. So, because the it, you'll have you know. Filling up personal vehicles with some of the diesel that's on site and things of that nature. So you would, you know, that technology there was barcoding each of the individual assets and then looking at consumption and sharing that data with the the customers. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, why is why is Brandon consume, consuming so much over here on on his truck and Ben is only consuming half as much while Brandon's filling up his personal vehicle? So all those were the three opportunities. The the self-storage and the fleet refueling they were going to take a lot of capital to get started like no one's going to finance your your line to go buy diesel fuel because it can easily walk away so it, i was struggling with raising capital like diluting myself to be used for working capital it just seemed like an inefficient use of equity and um but you needed to do that because you weren't going to be able to debt finance that and self storage it uh um yeah similar thing like you're going to I would have to go raise a bunch of money to be able to start buy number one and and keep it going there. Whereas dental banks were very comfortable lending. So that was one lens that was used. And the other was, uh, I mean, what I liked was the barriers. So if you're going to go buy Dunkin' Donuts, you're approved as a franchisee and then you're off to the races in dental. There was all these complexities that existed and that I knew about from my time with ATI in terms of who owns, the professional corporation that's providing the services to patient and is contracting with the payers, um, which would be like the insurance carriers that are reimbursing for procedures done. And then who owns the management company? And there's a, a legal structure called a friendly PC that's able to do that. It just, it just dawned on me, like these are complexities that exist that are going to prevent, you know, mass entry into this type of, you know, the, it's going to create barriers. And in 14, we were my partner and I were fairly early on into the DSO game, whereas now there are hundreds of private equity backed platforms that are out there. Uh but at that point in time it was it was still pretty small. So it was fun to it was fun to be early to the party and uh and see all the other guests show up, which was serendipitous. But at that point, hey, diligence wise, you looked at how fragmented it was and it was maybe 5%, maybe 10% consolidated. So you had a huge runway in terms of what you could go do.
0: And you talk about your core skill set being taking a painting that's already, you know, half painted or somewhat painted and making it better. I'm interested as you were assessing the opportunity to create a platform that included a number of dental practices, where did you see that there was room to help the individual practices be more efficient or profitable?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of opportunities. Uh, and it goes back to the paper charts in 2014, like, wow. Uh, it, it but with the opportunity, there's the reason that we could go do what we, what we did and still can continue to do that. There's, there's some like macro factors that were taking place within dental. So the cost of education had risen considerably. Historically, the model was always apprentice. You graduated, you went and worked for someone. And then over time you bought their practice. And or they sold it to you. Um, It was that the apprentice model worked for the transition of practices from legacy providers to the new to the new crop of graduates, and that tuition all of a sudden being four hundred thousand dollars, five hundred thousand dollars, that was creating this debt burden, and graduates looking to receive income so that they could pay down the debt versus trying to go back out and swing again and try to. Not swing again. Swing for the first time and build something on their own. That's number one. Number two, and I, I'd say these are probably all even in terms of their impact on the industry. Number two was the fact that uh, millennials, like, there's a different, a little bit of a different mentality in terms of the the staunch desire to be independent, hang your own shingle, and go out on your own. Uh, community more important, being part of something bigger, um, that support, and maybe not the. I don't know if it's the entrepreneurial gene, but it's just, Hey, when I look at what I want, the quality of life that I want to lead and what's required to run my own practice, I probably would rather have the, on the, the great, the great majority would rather have that help and assistance and not go hang their own shingle. And then the third element was female uh, graduates from dental school was now the majority. And that desire was to have, to continue to, to have a six figure income and be able to practice what they learned, but, do that two to three days a week. And so they can still spend time at home with the family, but not have the work four days a week chair side. And then Friday and Saturday do supply ordering and payroll and these other things. So it was this combination of those three that were creating this opportunity for consolidators to exist because previously it would just, the practice would be turned over to uh, that, that new grad through the apprentice model. Uh, And so you've got that's the backdrop that allowed us to enter and then on top of that um at at dental school I think there's a couple hours of of business training and then after that it's all on the job and there's a lot of consultants that are out there to help individual practitioners and look it's a it's an incredibly profitable enterprise if it's if it's well run uh you can I mean ex, like after you pay if you pay yourself a market salary you can still have 30% profitability left over in an individual location. And that's like, that's awesome. And you paid yourself market uh, and you can still walk away with that much. And that's, that's, if it's well run, but the, uh, what, what we looked at is your P and L, um, is predominantly dominated by labor. So clinical labor, your dentist, and then non clinical uh labor, including hygiene, front desk, and other dental assistant and other team members within the practice. So that's you know, your mid 40% range. But where we focused was um like there's you can focus on the cost side or you can raise revenue. And so we tried to do both at the same time because then you had obviously margin expansion. And so as I was going down the cost side, so labor, big component there, but we're not in the business of going buying something and then trying to cut labor. Like that does, that's not a good story for anyone. Um, like, cause it, it's a small industry. And when you buy an office, that's going to be a recommendation for the next seller. And those team members are going to be recommendations for the next team members that you buy. Cause every time you buy an office, like Ben decided to go work at this practice. He didn't decide to go work for the true family dental brand that came in and bought the practice. So you've got you got to deal with that. So, the labor piece, you know, we weren't we weren't trying to cut there. But then once you once you go from that, there's uh, labs and supplies are the next big pieces. So your labs are the the um, crown products or other maybe dentures could be uh, removable orthodontic products, Invisalign, Smile Direct Club, those type of things uh, that are going in, and um, we would just call the manufacturers and. Or the distributors, and hey, we're we're building a business here. We want, as we continue to consolidate, we need some scale here, and so we'd work on that purchasing power, and also try to uh, try to tighten what we were buying, because if you can guarantee spend across uh, specific categories versus being scatter shot like long tail esque, um, they can do a better job of inventory management, and they can go back to manufacturers and bring better discounts to us. And what we so what we did there is had our uh, at once we got to the size that we had a clinical team that that created a formulary that was, hey, we've got choice within these buckets, and our providers can choose up up to three or four different things that exist there, but we've consolidated it so we're not buying 50 different items for 50 different SKUs for one item. like let's say like the piece of gauze that's used, like here's the, here's the three options of the gauze or probably even less than that because, no no one ever had uh, a a lot of opinions on the gauze that was being used but on the so that's how we focused on the the cost side there was really like looking at contracts negotiating taking advantage of economies of scale um, better inventory management making sure we weren't ordering if we didn't need just because we ordered every month making sure that we actually needed that Uh, and then on the on the revenue side so it was We had, we would uh, convert all the, all the practices to one software that we use, which was our practice management system, which then unlocked the data. And the data could be, uh, Ben was in last month and he hasn't been in, uh, and he had, did not make an appointment for five months from now for his recare appointment, right? You're supposed to come twice a year. And so making, like just looking at what patients left today without a recare appointment and driving that number down looking at um, uh, what patients have outstanding treatment plans like that we've diagnosed and making sure that we understand that when they're back in, in the morning. So they're, you know, operationally is where we got very, very involved. And we created a, like I, my partner and I, we both sat at a front desk uh, for six months after early on because we approached it as as private equity guys out of the gate. Oh, we're going to buy some of these things at two times, Ebitda, and then we're going to sell at ten. and We're going to be brilliant businessmen. Well, we bought some stuff at two to three times, and it it underperformed. So, like we didn't we didn't factor that part into our two to ten time arbitrage opportunity. And so we got to go in and run these things to create performance, to create uh, cash flow that allowed us to continue to receive debt. And yeah, I sat there for six months, checked patients in, verified insurance, checked them out. Uh, did everything and really wrote a, wrote a manual called the true way, which was like 300 pages that showed how to use our software within the practice. And th- those were our, those were our like operating principles. And, and I mean, we were able to drive uh, EBITDA after ownership, you know, 30 some percent year one and um, revenue grew I, I, uh, at a similar amount. And so we were, actually less because we had the expansion from the control on the cost side. So, you know, mid twenties revenue growth from every one of our offices that we bought. And like, that was our, that was, um, how, how we did it both top line focus and bottom line. And it was, uh, regimented, uh, KPIs and using the data to drive decisions and then, um, making it, uh, uh, making sure to have like the, the culture of excellence, like, there's a distinct link between oral health and overall health. And if we're delivering someone optimal oral health, they're going to be a healthier overall. And that, that was our that was our mandate and what we what we existed to do and existed to perform. And if you're giving someone uh, clear care from a, from an oral perspective, you, you knew the, uh, the benefits that existed there.
0: I love that you sat at a desk for six months. It's the ultimate example of things that are not scalable, but highly important in terms of your learnings, right?
1: Well, you know, it's like humbling too, because you know, you spend, uh, we spent nine months trying to buy a practice. And the first practice we bought was from a dead guy. That's the only person that would sell to us. Obviously they didn't have a lot of choice, which I mean, like that's, Hey, that's so you're like, it's humbling to have that. And then, you know and by this point a couple of years out of school and like wait i got this great shiny harvard mba and here i am sitting at the front of a dental practice for 6 months but i mean that was like the true way and then to cuz if we understood the business at a granular level we could see the opportunity and yeah um like my, i've always been and I, and I don't know where it comes from but uh when someone tells me no that's like oh This is where I should spend my time. And it could be like, I struggle with no turn on red because like the government doesn't trust me to turn on red because I'm going to get hit by a car. And I struggle there because like, I look right, we'll probably look left first, right? I'm turning right. And then I look right and no one's coming and I can't turn. I struggle there. And so I, all the time when someone tells me no, as I'm like, well, that's my opportunity because like it's that uh, viewing that painting in a different light or with a different lens. If, if when I'm looking at it now, well, I, why this makes total sense to me. Why, to me, why aren't we doing this? Well, we just never have, or the industry doesn't believe that way, or we've always done it this way. Well, awesome. That's perfect. Great opportunity. Let's go. And change is hard. Behavioral change for individuals is hard and really learn that Um, because like if you look at, Bezos and Amazon, hey, I'm gonna turn up the widget machine to move more boxes. Like it doesn't work that way in a service industry and that was also something that was great about dental that I knew we couldn't get attacked from big tech. Uh, but the, like what what makes humans great like you're you chose that plant and that poster. I chose these books. like we're all human. That's what makes life beautiful. But then if we weren't and we' were all robots, it'd be the same but now we're in the like it's really hard to understand what Ben wants and what he wants to achieve and it's different from this person and in every practice there's 15 people and getting them aligned to to have patient care uh it just it's uh, it, it's it's daunting but um yeah the uh the ability to hey we've done it to rest on one's laurels like doesn't exist and then also just to I'm like I'm a, I'm you know have forgiveness not permission individual and I think that's probably a trait that exists in a lot of entrepreneurs because you're going to go do I mean at the end of the day so many businesses fail and you're literally going to go do something that you've got a probability that isn't favorable and you're like you're crazy or dumb enough or naive enough or maybe hubris to believe that you can go succeed so um, those are those are all pieces but yeah that's how that that six months was humbling but the true way then became it was you'd go by an office and you could go down and look at everything that we would want to do it, per, it like this is perfect and you'd compare it to what exists and then you'd map out by week in terms of what would spend time training on and then you'd go back and look at the data after you've trained on it to see if it was done and the performance would take off because if every patient leaves with a recare appointment you're going to have more point uh, more patients and if you're doing a confirmation call and you're having a morning huddle in the morning reviewing what you could do that day, life's like it it works. There's like it's and so it's simple but yet so complex because of the nature of nature of humans.
0: I want to jump back into the technology question or discussion that we kind of touched on earlier. So I used to be a shareholder of Henry Shine, which is the largest dental supplier in the world, and the management team there always talked about how hard it was to get certain dentists to embrace the technology. Maybe talk a little bit about your sense of the importance of technology when it comes to modern dental practices and how you thought about using technology to make the practices more efficient and more profitable.
1: Yeah, I would totally concur and agree with the the management team there. Like, I wouldn't wish a dental practice software conversion on my worst enemy because of how painful and hard it is. Uh, It's hard. And so like that, that's what we were up against. And so you we had to sell what the product could do different than what was existing previously. Uh and you it was I mean the question uh, the, the concerns or the friction that would exist. Oh, are you like the, the user experience, this is how we used to enter this, and it was so much easier. Like I that's that's a small piece of the greater mission of what we're looking to do here. Um that was a non-negotiable for us, and we knew that it, it, that was a challenge. Um, and but we just started with that, and so we knew that we were going to have the same software, and we were going to have the same AR, and everything was going to be managed the same throughout the entire organization. But then beyond that, um, every every like it, it is, uh, it, it was very hard to change. But what software allows you to do, and what we were really trying to to, to utilize it for. And, and, and I know we're going to get to it, but I'm, we're going to go build another one of these. And what we didn't focus on as much because we were non-clinicians, uh, we focused more on the cost side. But as we think about it this time, iteration 2.0, what software can allow you to do is if you're freeing up FTEs that or an expense that you would have had in the organization, that you can reallocate that on the customer-facing side so if everything that we do helps us get someone to optimal oral health and software helps you get there, like that's, that's the beauty of software. And look, I mean, you know, the proliferation, the, the pandemic helped out in terms of, uh, you know, all of a sudden you're doing some teledentistry or things remote and trying to confirm a point like teledentistry, sorry, the pandemic really allowed more software to come in and people to be more open to it. Um, there can, cont- it, it, it's still, uh, there's still friction that exists, but more people at this point in time, you know, you're, we started we more 10 years almost from the time when we started. So you've had you know, 10 years of retirement and 10 years of new entry and the generation that's coming in, right. They've, they have and, and have they've never lived without one of these devices in their hands. Like that's always been and so the consumption of technology and other things, and, and quite frankly, the products that exist to help practices across many different areas. So accounts receivable, uh, accounts payable, it, driving revenue confirmations, all different facets within the practice have, um, have come to the forefront, but you know, um, that back to it, it still continues to be a, a change and changes are tough for human beings. And especially with, uh, with new tech that you've got to really, um, you can't you can't use a shoehorn, it's gotta be
0: soft. And you mentioned that customer first mentality and that's something I've heard you talk about in other interviews. I think most people don't think of service the service they receive at a dental office the same way they receive um, service at a restaurant or hotel, but the customer experience still really matters. Did you have any big insights or learnings when it came to the service aspect? Yeah, I,
1: I think that, like, why shouldn't we think of it that way? And, it, it, and historically, it hasn't. We had a board member that said, when you're in your offices, look up. Like, Where do all of your customers look the entire time they're in there? You know, you're, and so, because then you see some cobwebs or a stained tile. Most of the time, you're looking on. And so it was, that was a great, uh, great perspective for us to then open up this whole other uh, it, like Avenue, but just always the, constantly think about the customer and I've mentioned Amazon in terms of ability to move widgets, but they do a great job with it, 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 internally when they're at you know headquarters, there's a chair in every meeting that's empty and that represents the customer because when you're in the, the office and you're not out there as a customer, you can lose face and be like, wow, if we do this widget on the website or we change this for shipping like that's going to make us a lot better maybe make my job better on accounting who knows what but the perspective is the lens that they see that's really close to them which is their lens versus the lens of the customer and so we would uh we, we tried to do the same any decision or uh anything we were trying to push into the practice it could be a new financing option or a new credit card processing um, storing your credit card on file. Like we would always have to ask ourselves, Hey, how does this change? What does this do to the customer? And on that service piece, um, I don't, people don't, they, they might not expect it to be like the, the restaurant, but when you have a great experience anywhere in life, you're a promoter. And the, uh, the health of a a dental practice is driven by, how many active patients they have and the, the your active patient count will absolutely increase if people are having a phenomenal experience and they're promoting your business um, because it, it doesn't need to be like, it, it gets really hard for someone to switch a dentist um, because you know where to park, you know where to go. You've been there before, you're comfortable and you already f- created this rapport um, but if it, if it, uh, if the, if that does happen, people are going to talk to, they're going to go to the internet, but they're also going to talk to other people. And we just wanted it to, um, know, yeah. no one says today's going to be a great day. Like Ben wakes up in the morning and says, I got my dental appointment today. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great day. No one ever says that, but that was our, that was our aspiration to create that experience where it was, uh, that people were like, you know what, like, this is, I've been informed so much and I understand so well about my oral health that I'm glad I'm going there today. Maybe I'm not excited, but I'm glad I'm going there and this is a great place that takes care of me. Like at the end of the day, um, I mean, what more could you want to be part of an organization that delivered that type of experience?
0: And you went through a private equity roll up of the physical therapy uh, space when you're when you're um, at your previous firm. Is there anything you chose specifically not to do that is typical of private equity rollups? I'm thinking it sounds like the customer, you know, kind of customer first focus versus profitability focus. Anything else that, like, you know, maybe you took away from that experience and said, "I want to do this a little differently when I when I have my hands on the wheel."
1: Um, I I don't. I mean, broadly speaking, no. But given that my hands were on the wheel, um, I mean, it was it was a ref, it was a representation of me as an individual and my partner and we wanted uh we cared deeply about just i guess the not only the customer experience but also the team member experience like my employee was a band word there's like we're not employing you we're, we're on a team together so you're a team member and like we we had um at our we called it our support center that was that was the corporate office but the support center because we were supporting the practices we didn't get a touch patience there, but we got to support the team members that did, and we we shared. Uh, we didn't share an office, but we shared a wall. My partner and I, and they were the smallest offices of any of the executive team, and uh, that was by design. Um, you know, like we're we're no different. We we do everything the same, and uh, we would have um, team member parties, and we would be cooking the entire time, serving because you know this is our chance to thank everyone. Uh, so I think it was things like that. But I mean, at the end of the day, a, a pri- like, private equity fund is going to use leverage. We use leverage. Um, they're going to grow through organic growth and M&A growth, did both of those. Um, I mean, I know that at one point in time, there was the cost-cutting side of buying something, stripping out costs, increasing profitability. But I, I mean, some of that still happens, but like, I don't think that's the predominant go-to-market strategy. The difference was is that like, It was our capital and we had those experiences but we were deploying it as operators which was a a, a very different thing like um now i know when sitting in the ivory tower with an excel file of growth and a hockey stick and then handing that to the operator like how disingenuous that was because Uh, actually having to achieve what's in the Excel is a heck of a lot different, um, than putting the Excel model together. So it became an operator and, um, uh, took lumps, grew a lot, but, uh, had a, had a heck of a good time.
0: And true family was sold to Heartland dental, a large dental service organization that's owned by KKR in late 2020. Maybe you can talk about the impetus for making that, uh, transaction
1: yeah we weren't for sale and um we all we'd always thought we i mean we built the business We had a full i mean really great f and a team and things like meaning we were building it for a sale to a sponsor or to a private equity fund in our mind uh, and we would run it for a little bit and either keep running it or that decide that they wanted to, to go a different direction but we thought that that was the plan and uh the COVID happened and heartland was they weren't able to do some single shingle type uh transactions because no one knew what was going to happen and the standalone providers were still trying to get back on their feet and we had a great relationship with them like they were instrumental in terms of early on providing support and that that's one thing that the dental industry like is very open in terms of sharing um there's some stuff that's kept close but I mean, everyone's approachable because everyone wants success. Like everyone wants the patient to be treated well. Everyone wants um, the organizations to succeed because it's, it's better for the industry and it was growing pretty quickly. And so we had a really good relationship with the, the management team and once they'd been phenomenal. So we had this relationship um, and started talking about doing something and obviously it came to fruition, but it, we, we didn't have a banker. We didn't have a process. Uh, it, it, this all came about very naturally based on relationships and, um, you know, kudos to them for it, helping us out because it ultimately worked in them being able to, um, acquire a, what we think was a great business. And what I hope that they feel was a great business because they had put in the work earlier and formed that relationship. And it, and it goes back to, you know customer service or your promoter like we're obviously a huge promoter of them and um you know that resulted in an acquisition like a sizable
0: acquisition for them and you hinted at the fact that you're at it again in the dental space yeah. um, along with another venture but let's start with uh seva dental talk about the strategy there what's anything different what's how are you thinking how are you approaching it this time
1: yeah, what's what's uh, incredible is you can like if you've played the game before when you go to do it again, your 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 muscle memory is is obviously there, but then you're also expanding your vision so much farther cuz you're like, all right, I already know this part and I I've, I've seen that and I've played that part and I'm very comfortable there. Like that's on autopilot if so to speak, and you've got that really but now, hey, what do we it's just really fun taking like starting from zero again. And what do we want to be? What's our true North and how do we align everything towards that? And how do we create incentives, comp structure um, all, all these pieces before that we had no idea, like ignorance was bliss. Whereas, and we would build I mean, the plane was flying and we were building it. Whereas now we're going to be able to set some really great things in place before we get started um and so but very similar in terms of um buying offices and improving uh performance through operations and efficiencies technology those type of things but really excited to you 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 won't you won't make new mistakes but these other ones that we've already made are are pretty exciting and i was like going through a a file of, okay, here's the stuff that we want to do before we buy our first practice. And you looked at like what that volume of work was historically and the number of years and the ability to like get that up and going out of the gate was like, Oh wow, this is, this is, this is going to be much different this time.
0: I'd love to dig in a little bit there. Any anecdotes or stories? Like what, what mistakes are you definitely not going to make again?
1: Um, oh geez. Uh, so I I guess like our first office, we just bought something to buy something and and now that office turned out to be a tremendous success, but the, the, the need to just get something won't like time is time is a precious resource, but we're not going to do something that won't, that we know that can't be successful. Um, I think making the customer like, obviously going to be focused on the cost side but care care create more of a culture around the 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 customers the patient side because if we're at the end of the day if you're serving the patient and everything else from a financial perspective will make sense like all like any any water that rises it's going to hide a lot of rocks and so um that's a much in theory easier way to to increase Um, financial performance uh um I don't I don't think we'll be as um I think more uh, create a better not not a better but create a more a, a tightly wound relationship with our doctors um in terms of you know hey this is creating opportunities financially for them um out of the gate but like some some great mistakes uh um there was like we uh we were buying an office and the we had, the wire was in process and i go to the practice front desk like, hey brandon how are you good well who, who's working here tomorrow i'm like well you are you're here right now no i quit with the rest of the team um so we, <laughs> the seller seller hadn't told us that that happened uh another time we bought an office that that the majority well, all of the all of the revenue was done by a dentist who had left a couple weeks earlier so we didn't think to like look at a revenue by provider mix and be like well where is that provider because there was a provider there but it wasn't the provider that had done all this great work um uh our our most challenging deal we didn't understand the th- there's different type of practice philosophies so you can you can Uh, episodic is a, is a meaning a patient comes in in pain and you get them out of pain. And so it's like emergency S type service. And we bought an episodic office, not knowing that we bought that. And the way you can tell that is you can just see like how many patients are coming in for their hygiene, like their preventative stuff. And we, at that point, we weren't understanding the link between that preventative piece and, um, the, the, the philosophy of the office. So like that's uh that was, that was our most challenging deal. And which was great. It was a, uh, it was a black eye and it. We learned, we, we, we got it to a point of okay in terms of where it was at, but we, we took a lump there. Uh, and now we, but we got that lesson on the, the type of care. So those are just a couple of the examples, but the uh, uh yeah, the not understanding who did the revenue, like, and then you close and, you're like, wow, this office is really great. And then you see like revenue not being at the same, and you're like, What's going on? They're like, Well, that was a different provider that's not here. And it hadn't even dawned on us to to figure that out before. So our um you know, those are we we always talked about you can break any bone and a lot of lacerations. You just can't you can't bleed out. So don't lose an appendage. But we made a lot. Those are some of the
0: mistakes, and there are many more. Those are great stories. Thank you for sharing. And so you have a second venture, um, which is focused on architectural and engineering firms. How did you land on that space um, as one to focus on?
1: My partner from Dental, he had previously worked at a a, a private equity fund that had bought a, a project management business within the within the A industry. and that business has done incredibly well. the The CEO and my partner we made friends. And, uh, the three of us got together, um, about a year ago and decided to, because of the, I mean, started, had always been my partner and this gentleman had always been uh, talking about opportunities. And as they, as they kept talking around architecture and engineering, it became clear that there's a lot of similarities that exist to doing a role up there that existed for us in dental. And then Finley, our partner, he's got the domain expertise. So we, uh, it, made a lot of sense to put that um, to put that together. Now in each of these in, in both Seva and Providus, um, not going to be operating this time, uh, but not going to be a board member only where hey, we'll see every every quarter. Um, what we view it as is we've got this expertise uh, that allows a company to scale quickly. and it's our responsibility to work on the business while a management team is working in the business. And so if you've got like in the, in the dental business, like right now, earlier today, I was on with some HR, like some human capital management software vendors. So I'm, I'm going to go get that, get that set up and then launch that. And obviously the, uh, our CEO will be responsible for it. And he's, he's all, he's being involved in picking it, but I'm doing the legwork of, the research, the meetings, and seeing the, the the pluses and minuses, and we'll make a, a decision together collectively. But um, I, I we were like my partner and I sometimes refer to it as Chair One. So Chair One, you're responsible for everything, and I've I've also called it like toilet paper responsibility because at the end of the day, when we were running the dental business, if an office ran out of toilet paper, there there could be a call that was coming. Hey, why don't I have? And so, you know, like, that's if you're running something, I mean, it's a huge commitment. And um, I got four young kids um, six, four, two, and 10 months. So there's a lot going on there and want to be active, want to keep building, and just think that right now, like, this type of uh, style of continuing to build, continuing to grow businesses works really well for. Uh, where I'm at and you know, I could continue to hopefully you know, keep the um, professional ball in the air and keep the family ball in the air and, and kind of have it both because before uh, and that's also I mean I think True Family was the first big venture um, and I had other ventures but that didn't have the big big success that we had with True um, I mean failure is not an option and like that's all that meant so I was There, there was, there were no boundaries. I was going to say limited, but I didn't want to be. I wanted to be honest. So there were no boundaries. So, if a dentist wanted to meet anytime, anywhere, any planet, I was going to make that happen, and we were going to build this business and crank it to 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 make it successful. Whereas now, um, I I my plan is to have better boundaries. I'm at least conscious of them. I've I've learned that I'm a very black or white person. It's not like we're going to go do something gray. We're either going to do it or we're not, and uh, so this will be a challenge. Um, but you know, one that I'm obviously my wife and I agreed that we should keep going uh, or, or go back at it. So look forward to hopefully finding success and in, in, in terms of staying true to the uh,
0: belief that I can have have better better guardrails, better balance. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Diluba. DeLupa was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. DeLupa offers an AI driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit deLupa.com slash compounders. I think people will be interested in how you're structuring these ventures. you have a fund are you a so-called independent sponsor or are these more like holding companies maybe describe the the funding structure a little bit for us
1: yeah uh we've we've referred to ourselves as a little bit of a search fund a little bit of a fundless sponsor and a little bit of a private equity fund because you know we're since we were gonna you know work on the business and help operate it kind of moves us out of certain places and more to the search fund um and then from a capital perspective, we raised uh we raised money from um like other entrepreneurial individuals like ourselves or prior investors that we that came along at, at True Family Dental uh, for Providus. And then with Seva, we're just using our own balance sheet there to stand that up and 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 go build something there. So a little bit of a little bit of both, and and um, it's hard to like when people ask, Well, what are you? and we we go through, well the search fund, the sponsor, independent sponsor, and then the actual sponsor. Um, and they're like, yeah, you're probably right. Like you don't, you don't fit into any of those buckets.
0: I, I hear that. And institutions have trouble with with that kind of, you know, kind of uh, nebulousness. Yes. So-
1: like when you're going out and you're, you're like, cause it, it, if people fit in box, it, it, life is easier if you fit in a box right? Like I can put you there. I understand this. And so it's something new, um, but we're, we've we had success so far from a fundraise perspective.
0: And the one thing that's different between now and when you were building your family is that int- the interest rate environment is totally different. So I'm interested in in, in understanding if the, the the recent increase in interest rates changes how willing you are to use debt to finance these, these deals and these roll-ups.
1: Yeah. What we... I mean, it's a, it's obviously we're, we're saying that, Hey, rates are, I mean, you hope that they get better. You don't know that. So how we're modeling things is saying, this is, this is the rate. Um, so it's going to impact returns and it's going to impact what you're able to pay. Uh, if people are if more interested in a seller note with something that's comparable to um, you know, where they're getting in a money market and other things like that, that can, that can help out, obviously could pay a little more in that instance. But yeah, I think that, um, on the dental side, there's, I mentioned hundreds of private equity backed platforms. LPs were asking funds if they didn't have a dental platform. Hey, why don't you, there's been, the people have had success and you had a large influx of, um, supply capital. And then a lot of people started building things. And there's there are opportunities out there right now that aren't, um, they're doing okay, but they're just not performing like at a level that's going to like get the fund to be excited, to put more capital in, to get to that next hurdle. And so they're kind of, you know, it's that in-between state where like, well, are we going to sell this? We don't have something that's high performing. It's, it's good. Uh, and I, I share that because um, because of that, there's there's a little – in some of our markets, what we've seen already is we've gone back and talked to brokers. There's a little less demand from a from a uh, perspective of DSOs buying in the marketplace. So that's going to be helpful in terms of, all right, if you don't have competition, you're going to be you – know, your, your valuation is going to go down a little bit. And so can that valuation decrease be offset by – the increase that we're going to spend on the capital stack and um but i like there's still a a, there's there's the arbitrage still exists it's compressed like people are expecting more for the individual practice to be paid and the the hiccups that other dsos have had have dropped multiples on the platforms a little bit and and plus like look uh, what people are able to pay is is inhibited by the interest rate environment that you mentioned so but there's still ample opportunity from an arbitrage perspective, and to buy and and create and and to grow. Um, but that's how we're, we're 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 being flexible, and then we're making sure that any uh, capital sources that we have that there's like the, no prepayment penalties and things of that, in case we want to try to work our way out of something if rates do change here um, for the better in the next you know two to two to four
0: years is there anything different in terms of the way you're thinking about a potential exit when it comes to seven dental and providence capital partners? Is it, you know, you said you weren't for sale per se, um, at, at true dental, but there was always this kind of plan to, to consider an exit. How are yeah. you, how are you thinking about that this time around?
1: On providence, that's a traditional hold period. Um, and, but we've got flexibility in our capital that we don't have to, uh, there's the close friend is AJ Wasserstein and he's written extensively about the issues of selling something with the, your capitals on the sideline, you have taxes. And if you've already created the flywheel, like why not just take advantage of that and use recaps as a way to deliver returns. Um, so, but that, that I, I, in talking to our investor base, they're comfortable. Like our goal is that traditional five-year type period, but Look, if, if we've got an opportunity and we see a, um, I, I view it very similar, true. Like we weren't there, but we, we had an opportunity to create meaningful shareholder value and that when that's available, you need to take advantage of it. And so on, but the plan with profit is, is a traditional hold period, but we don't have a requirement, um, there's not mandates in the docs to have it for x period of time like lps might with the with the traditional um sponsor and then with seva uh very much more comfortable there on forever um because there is it's our our balance sheet that we're building it and the, the last we, we we think we've got a a great team to go at this problem again and think that we can do a lot more, but would want to take time to to really see that through. But once again, if if we're in a market that someone wants access to, and shareholder value is created, at, like incredible shareholder value, just you, no one's ever gone broke um, by by selling. You know, <laughs> so so um, you may have missed the top, but you know, no one's like. No, no one's ever had that those druthers after selling.
0: And being involved with two new ventures sounds like a lot for anyone. How are you allocating your time between them?
1: Um, it's uh as I mentioned, like not being responsible for the um, uh, chair side and, or like being you know chair one and having everything flow up like that helps out a lot because the it's the, the variances aren't like the blowups that happen get handled um, by other individuals. And there's always going to be that. Like there's all these problems every day that exist in a business, but I'm able to think strategically and work on projects to help them. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, in it's, uh, it, there's always balance and there's always prioritization. And I think that, uh, as I've, as I've continued to mature, I've gotten better at that always can get better, but yeah, I, the, the, Getting things done, GTD. David Allen is a methodology that I practice in terms of trying to um, really plan out projects and then execute. So over planning and then execute thereafter, and and managing um, managing my energy across different different platforms. Like it could be work in the office, it could be work while on a plane, and just really trying to prioritize what work gets done and where Uh, I think I've, I've gotten better at that over time.
0: And you have to change your investing approach a little bit. If you're not going to be an operator, I mean, I could see a situation in which you'd be very comfortable with a big turnaround and struggling office that you feel like, you know, used to be able to parachute in and, and, and you kind of whatever, fix it versus being more of a player coach and trying to, you know, trying to coach people to be better is the kind of practices you're going to be focused on at Seva different than than what you were looking at at True Family?
1: Well, the we got comfortable with that parachuting in eventually, and whereas now you know what's around the corner, so can help can can make someone aware either through data or experience on where to spend time, where to look, and I think that's the like. We're looking at some stuff that I wouldn't call it distress, but they're underperforming. and not and I think the not not planning to 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 run something, but no, if if needed can and then bring something like it's really nice to be able to go into a space where um the, the, you've got that like got that opportunity. um and look if it's a a we we buy something and once again, is it working in the business or on the business? Well, we decide that hey, we're going to go buy an asset that needs this, this, and this, and that doesn't make sense for our partners, our man manage- like the people we're working with, to go spend time there. All right, we'll go do that, and it's it it's got all right. We expect it to be a month, but you know we're human nature is we always under uh, you know <laughs> under budget how long something's going to be. So all right, am I comfortable with a three month stint?
0: You know, full time. Yeah, let's let's go do that. And if we're having this conversation seven years from now, what would success look like to you when it comes to the two new ventures?
1: You know, the success is always like, I I think those around customers, team members, just like making, like want to leave the world a better place and like, okay, that's great, Brandon. What does that mean? Well, if you're, if we're helping our team members increase what they thought was possible and meaning you know, we were very big on education and training within the organization. Like we wanted people to continue to achieve more and, and push them, but then also help them like wanted to make the impossible possible for them. Uh, And so I I look at that on a team member side and then on a, on a customer side um, I mentioned earlier, who wouldn't want to be part of an organization whose hopes and dreams are to make this a positive experience to go to the dental practice. So I like obviously want the the um, the performance from a shareholder perspective for both ventures, um, but but I, I think that if the first I mean these are such service oriented type businesses and the culture piece matters so much. Whereas if we're truly making the world a better place within that organization, the financial results will follow thereafter.
0: Brandon, we've covered a lot. We've covered business school. We've covered True Family. We've covered your two new ventures. We'll close with the question that we always ask our guests, which is what is the most underappreciated aspect of the investment opportunity associated with, I guess, what are putting together groups of what are essentially white collar service organizations?
1: I think the, I, I was just talking culture and I think that that's the, like, of course, when you look at one of these service businesses and a roll-up, of course, it's going to make financial sense. Like if there's going to be scale opportunity on the cost side, hopefully you can drive revenue increase. And then the the larger asset's going to be more recurring-esque or more protectable and have, uh, so it's going to be worth more, right? From a, like a multiple expansion opportunity. But what I, I, I think that gets underestimated is that cultural piece like every day your revenue creators walk out the door and um they they obviously have a incentive from a paycheck income perspective but what else are you doing that makes this the the best place and getting um getting disparaging individuals to buy into a common goal and it's it's just that cultural piece especially in a roll-up where people didn't decide to work for you, they decided to work for someone else whom you've purchased, and really making it,
0: ma- making that be a, a greater opportunity for them. Well, Brendan, I, uh, For someone who's spent most of his life, you know, flying at 18,000 feet or even, you know, getting as low as 10,000 feet as a public company investor, I was really interested to hear about, you know, like what it's like to be an operator and, and an entrepreneur within the kind of a roll up. So this has been really fascinating for me. Really, really appreciate you being on Compounders. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Really appreciate the time.